1: Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're going to be talking with a former family court judge and getting her view on the foster care system. I think you're going to really find this show helpful. Uh, I know I did. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear.
2: Foster parents, have they're not parties to the case, but they are supposed to be able to participate in the case from the point the child is placed in their home. Now, that could mean a foster parent could file a report with the judge. It could mean that the parent come to the court hearings. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family.
1: We are the national adoption and infertility education and support nonprofit, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. You can also subscribe to this show uh, using whatever app you're currently listening to it on, if you're listening via your phone. If you're listening through your computer, you can go to our website and subscribe there, and it is creatingafamily.org slash radio show. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer does not have to mean a loss of fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no cost medication through Fairings Heartbeat Program. To learn more, you can go to their website, heartbeatprogram.com. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not and would not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They have three adoption programs, private infant program, an international program, and an adoption through foster care program. We also have Holt International, founded in 1950, 56, they want every child to have a loving and secure home. They lead the global community in finding families for children who need them and in providing the pre- and post-adoption support that they need to thrive. I'll come back to some other gold sponsors later, but I wanted to remind you that in addition to these gold sponsors, we also have other sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an adoption service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on our service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, uh, just a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a view of the foster care system from a unique perspective, and that is the perspective of a family court judge. Uh, Our judge today is going to be Karen Howes. She is a formal family court judge at the D.C. Superior Court. Welcome, Karen, to Creating a Family. Hey, Karen, are you there? Can you hear me? Hang on just a minute. We seem to be having a problem. Let me see if we can get this worked out. Karen, can you hear me now?
2: Yes, I can hear you.
1: Okay, great. Hey, well welcome to Creating a Family. I'm so glad you're going to be on. This is a uh this is a unique perspective for us. You know, this show has been going on since 2007 and we've never had we've talked to plenty of social workers, we've talked to plenty of foster parents, adoptive foster parents, former foster kids, uh you name it. We've talked to them, but we've never had the perspective from a judge and I am I'm so thankful to have you on and to have this uh this view being shared. And as you can imagine, we have lots of questions for you. Um Let me start with, I think, one of the biggest complaints that that we often hear uh, both through the popular media and and just in general is uh, against foster care is that it's a revolving door for kids and families and that kids spend years in foster care bouncing between families. I think before we address this issue exactly, it would help to have a little history of the federal legislation um, and how uh, on foster care and the expectations of foster care and how it impacts this. So, can you can you talk to us generally about you know the good old days back in the early let's let's start like in the early 1990s. What was it like? And 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 I, I go back that time period because there was some legislation in the mid 1990s that I think has has shifted. So let's talk about that. What did it used to be like? What changed legislation-wise, and what is it, and what were some of the improvements that that were the result of that legislation?
2: Well, in the um, '80s, let's go back into the '80s. The okay. numbers of kids in foster care uh, just ballooned across the country, Why? and uh, uh, simply because the the um, it It almost it, this is a period of time that I became an adoptive parent, so I'm speaking now from my experience in that arena as a parent. The process of of identifying adoptive families, the process of determining how long should a child wait before a decision is made not to reunify with the family, and the lack of um, either willingness or ability of the system to look at relatives. First. Those were all factors that were in the midst of the ballooning numbers. In the late 80s, the reform processes started to come on the table. There were a number of class action lawsuits that were filed in, in a number of communities, and there were bad things happening to kids who were in foster care. In the mid 90s, um, the Adoption Safe Families Act was passed by the federal government, and it, it provided a couple things for the states. Uh, Requirements for uh, court review, that it wasn't just going to be the child welfare agency. The court hearings had to be had on a regular basis, and there were time frames set for um, determining whether a child would return home or not. Now, the effect of the Adoption Safe Families Act, which passed in 95-96 and was probably implemented in most uh, jurisdictions no later than 2,000 that agreed to sign on, um, it gave a focus to finding relatives early on in the process, not waiting for 18 months or 24 months to then see, oh, grandma or auntie or godmother or a teacher who knew the child uh, was available to take the job. Second of all, you had only uh, approximately 24 months to begin to to determine whether reunification was going to happen or not. These they two the things permanency. became did, a game shifter. They were. Did they a game talk shifter. about
1: it as terms of of a permanency plan? You've got two years, or, or was it more like you have two years uh, to for the birth family to get their act together and. Then a decision has to be made, or was the goal really at that point to have permanency in place for the child at the two year mark?
2: The two, it actually is if the child is out of the home 18 months of the first 24 months, then there has to be a change in the plan, or the court has to certify that there is good reason to continue the reunification effort. For example, the parent is making good progress but needs a little bit more time. But it's not just a blanket uh we're going to keep going forever. There have to be time frames if you extend it, but the goal is to have that permanency plan for each child by the 24 month period.
1: Okay? Well, so the and, and the time frame was the and there were many things that the legislation did. However, the time frame seemed the most revolutionary at the time, saying, and there was a bit of a carrot and stick thing going on because the, the, there was money associated, and, and social work—I mean, um, social welfare systems were being judged on their ability to meet that rough time frame as well.
2: Well, so, uh, money had always been associated since the public law passed and uh, foster care uh, reimbursement was available in the 80s. Uh, it's just that the money kept going, and now there's accountability because we have the time frames that are set in uh, the adoption Safe families act
1: okay so how do these improvements play out in real life? Is it now um, it are our states and counties, social welfare systems meeting these the, bait, the kind of the rough two-year time frame, or are our children still being stuck and bounced between foster families and, and for longer periods of time?
2: Um, I really can't speak for what's happening all over the country. Um, I also, I have to honestly say, it's going to depend on the child welfare agency in in whatever county or jurisdiction the child is in. Uh, but what the federal government did do as part of the act is set up a very rigorous um i want to call it an evaluation process where the states have to not only the child welfare agency but the court have they all participate in getting the stats on each child who is out of home placement if they their stats from any jurisdiction are off the national mark that's set by the government then the the agency has to participate in what's called an improvement plan. And they're given so much time to improve those stats. In 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 effect in we're talking about length of time and care.
1: Right. And so it's and more and than
2: carrot it's more than it's more than a carrot and a stick. It's it really is more accountability. Now some states, some jurisdictions may decide they don't want to participate and that's where you really can't tell what the stats are like because those states that don't participate, they're not looking for the money. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that. Um, yeah, and I think most. I think that most counties and most states are participating um, at this point. Although you're right, they have the choice not to. So, how much? We have a question from someone in our audience wanting to know how much weight is given to the voices of foster parents. And she didn't specify, Um, but it's in making decisions on what's in the best interest of the child because that's the standard we're supposed to be using.
2: Well, one of the things that also is part of the change that has occurred since the Adoption Safe Families Act is foster parents have, they're not parties to the case, but they are supposed to be able to participate in the case from the point the child is placed in their home. Now, that could mean a foster parent could file a report with the judge. It could mean that the parent come to the court hearings. Now, each jurisdiction may have a time frame that they may say, well, the the child should be with the foster parent for three months before the participation, but it is an element now And that element did not exist before, and any foster parent should make sure that they are plugged in to be a voice for the child because the foster parent's voice about the needs of the child are part of what the judge needs to know so that best interest can be uh, maintained.
1: Does the foster parent have to have permission of the caseworker, or can they petition to be heard regardless of what the caseworker or the guardian ad litem or anybody wants?
2: They, they are to be given the opportunity to participate. So if the social worker is saying they can't, there is no reason why um, they cannot contact the court and ask for notice of hearings and that they would like to participate. Okay, here's a question from
1: Kelly. She wants to know what information did you find most helpful to hear from foster parents, about the kids in their home, assuming that they were allowed to give info in the court where you, when you, where you were at, which, as you have pointed out, they would have the right to do. So what information is most helpful for you in making decisions that a foster parent can provide?
2: Well, uh, foster parents can provide uh, information that I think we all, on the legal side, look at as um, well-being information. The, what what are the child's behaviors? I want to know what the child's routine is. How is the child sleeping? These are things that parent, a parent, foster or otherwise, can communicate in a way that's very different than you're going to get from the guardian at litem who may come through once every two, three weeks or whatever the requirements are in the jurisdiction. Um, I want to know how the child is doing in school. Um I want the foster parent to bring pictures of the kinds of drawings the child does. Now, I'm not looking at them as a psychologist or any kind of uh, um, social worker, but I'm looking at them to see how normal is this child's life, considering the lack of normalcy when you're not with your family. Uh, the communication with the foster parent also will it, – it, we have instincts as human, human beings, even though we're judges – and the, the way the foster parent communicates about the child says something about that home environment. Um, and to be able to ask questions about the information that's being provided by the social worker or the guardian at litem or the CASA of the foster parent also gives a broader picture of what, what is happening in this child's life.
1: We have another question from Kelly. She wants to know how you go about weighing the interest of the parties involved, mom, dad, and each child in care, when there is a potential conflict of interest in those from those different parties. I am not clear from her question whether she's talking about the bio mom and dad and each child in care or if she's talking about the foster parent. So let's assume at this point that she's talking about the bio parents because we have a separate question uh, from a foster parent that talks about their interests. Okay, so l- let's talk about um, how, it, just in general, how do you go about weighing the interests of the parties? Where, where are you getting your information from and, 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 and how do you weigh it?
2: All right. Uh, it, it also is going to depend on what phase of the case we're talking about when the case first comes open and the agency comes in and they say, well, we need to remove this child from the home because of these conditions. There's supposed to be a hearing, it's a very low evidentiary standard, but basically the judge is looking to see whether the child needs to be removed because it's not safe for that child in that environment. Um, that's, That's the only thing that the judge is looking at, the safety of the child and whether removal is appropriate. And is there always a
1: hearing? Wait, let me stop you there. Is there always a hearing at that stage before a child is removed, unless it's an emergency situation? Is there always a hearing before a judge?
2: Okay. There is always a hearing before a judge to move the child from the parent's home or the guardian's home to foster care. Now, that is about the relative rights of the parent, So that's why there has to be a hearing. Now, many jurisdictions say you have some say 72 hours. Some may even have emergency uh, provisions with some very good, um, uh, very careful detail about what that means. Uh, But ultimately, to place the child in foster care, there has to be what they call uh, equivalent of a probable cause hearing. It's the probable cause to remove the child. Now, when we get to... Uh, let's say we're talking about permanency and the goal was reunification and it's that two-year mark or 18 months. We have a hearing. There is a hearing and the judge has to make a decision whether the goal should change, okay? Now, we're not talking about conflicts here. We're talking about how, how has the parent performed in terms of remedying the situation that led to the child's removal? And is it now safe for the child to go back? So I think you can hear from what I'm saying is the question is not the conflicts between these parents like you would have in a divorce situation, but the safety and well-being of this child. And that each goal that is set at each stage of the proceeding has to be focused on safety, well-being, and best interest of the child.
1: Okay, and here's a question from Lois, who is a foster mom, and she says, it seems like all the weight is given to reunification, even when they, meaning the birth parents, are clearly not able to parent. Um, How is the, if there is a weight given one way or the other, we always tell people that, that the goal of foster care is family reunification, and that when you go in to be a foster parent, or, or a foster to adopt parent that that's part of what you agree to is that you know uh, there is a there is a a weight given to th- that trying to reunify the family is that uh, is that accurate what I've just said about the, that that uh, the first emphasis is on healing
2: families absolutely absolutely and anybody who is trained to be a foster parent that one of the things that they really try across the country to do is make it real clear that the first priority is for this child to either go back home or, since the Adoption Safe Families Act, return to the birth family through a relative or someone that the child already has a connection to. Now, that makes it hard for foster parents because sometimes in that interim of 18 months to 24 months, there needs to be a place so that everything can be... um, provided to either the relative or the, the birth parent so that reunification can happen but also will be successful. Because, see, that was also part of the problem years ago. Reunification might happen, and then the child would be right back again. Those numbers have changed since 96, 97, early 2000s. So there, the agencies are attempting with the uh, inclusion of psychological services, drug treatment, employment assistance to look at the total of this parent and what does that parent need to be able to not only get the child back, but sustain it. Do we need to build some capacity with the grandmother, auntie, godmother, as well as with the parent? Um, Those are the kinds of things that happen in the hearings. But it makes it difficult for foster parents because every day that goes by, you're falling more and more in love with this person. But the goal is for the the kid to return to the family because it's recognized how traumatic it is for children to be removed, even under yeah. the worst of circumstances.
1: Right, and I think that I think you've nailed the uh, you've hit the nail on the head. It is the it is hard, and yet that is part of the job of being a foster parent, including a foster to adopt parent, um, because that we do know that generally speaking, it's perceived that the best interest of the child is to be raised within uh, his or her birth family or birth community or extended family or or, or something as close, you know, moving outward um, from the from the birth family, and that is that is hard. You are listening
2: to. Let me say one other thing. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let me say one other thing, Don. You know, I said that I had started in all of this in this arena as an adoptive parent. I'd like to also say that adoptive parents, you have to decide what you can tolerate. I was never. I was not a foster parent. I said straight up, I only want to be engaged with children whose parents' parental rights have been extinguished. Mm-hmm. Because I knew emotionally I would not be able to turn that child back if the birth parent got their act together. And so that's a very important um, uh, thought process for people who are interested in moving into the adoptive arena through the child welfare agencies.
1: Yep, yeah, they're exactly right there are reasons why and, and certainly some uh some counties strongly discourage people from coming in as just an adoptive parent. Um, especially if you're looking for younger children because most of the children whose parental rights have already been terminated, um, are are you know, certainly not infants and often not toddlers. You are listening to creating a family. Today, we're talking about the foster care system viewed as viewed from a family court judge. Creating a family has the largest adoption communities on the social networks. In fact, we have just recently found out that we are ranked number one worldwide in the one number one worldwide influencer in the areas of adoption on the social networks by Clout. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook, and you can connect with our, like our Facebook group, not group, I'm sorry, page, which is facebook.com slash creatingafamily. You can join our very large and very active support group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash family or you could to be honest the easiest way is just to type in the words creating a family into the facebook search box you can like the page and join the group you can also connect with me individually and i am dawn.davenport1 we hang out on Pinterest and twitter as well and we go by at creating a family there And speaking of our uh, large and active support group, Karen, one of the – Karen House, by the way, is a former family court judge for the D.C. Superior Courts. Um, One of the – we had a very uh, uh, heated discussion, uh, uh, let's see, it was probably last week, about the role that race plays in the Removal of children from homes and in the requirements for reunification. The point was made uh, originally. What started it all was the that uh, black children are disproportionately represented in foster care most places. In particular, they were giving we were giving some national statistics, and it holds there as well. And they were also giving statistics from New York City, but that's that uh, that plays out uh, across the U.S. and very often. It's not that they're, the, uh, and this was a confusion to a lot of people, it's not that black kids make up the majority of children because they often do not, but their representation is disproportionate to the representation in the general population. So more black kids by proportion are in foster care. And so the, the question comes up is how often is race a factor? in the removal of children as well as the requirements for reunification. And I realize you were in in Washington, D.C., so I I don't know if you can address it outside of D.C., although you certainly are are active in legal circles in this area uh, uh, nationwide, so perhaps you can.
2: Um, I'm going to see if I can answer this in a way that may help the audience understand what we're really talking about. Okay. Uh, race may not in and of itself play a role as a factor with removal. Remember earlier I said it's the safety of the child. But when we look at our urban, rural environments and we start looking at the disproportionate number of children of color, that's African Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans, who are in foster care. We then have to go to what some of the social dynamics are that lead to responses when a call is made, okay? So is race a factor? Well, yes, because kids of color are, st- staying in, are in care more frequently and staying in longer. This has been going on for 30 years, Okay. Mm-hmm. But when you look at communities, you mentioned New York, okay? Uh, If I am a middle-class person and my child or upper-class person, and I'm white and my child has an accident, I might not go to the emergency room. I might be able to call my pediatrician and have the medical issue taken care of. If I go to the emergency room with the same kind of uh, injury chances are there will be a call made to Child Protective Services. You, under, you see the distinction that I'm making. The and choices...
1: The, the economic distinction is what you're making, if I'm understanding uh, it correctly. Yes. The, the ability to pay for a private care and that a pediatrician who knows you as a person is less likely to be suspicious that a broken arm, for instance, is a result that's of abuse right. and is more, more likely to agree to the story that junior fell down the stairs.
2: Right. Now okay. I'm using that because that's an example that I think is easy for anyone to understand. You're, same thing with schools, okay? Teachers are mandatory reporters, doctors. Um, certain other professionals, there's no choice. But if you happen to be in the wake of all of those people in a way that's very different than a white person or a person with economic means, then you're going to see this disproportionality. Now, once a kid comes into care, that's what you guys have been talking about here today. We've, We've been talking about here today. It's supposed to be 18 to 24 months, but, hey, sometimes it would go to five, six years, Because the dynamic within foster care is, and this is what the public believes, those of us who have interacted in one way or the other, once you're in, you're going to be in. So then that ends up increasing the numbers and increasing the disproportionality. Now, one of the things that has happened since the Adoption Safe Families Act, the federal government has also, uh, through that law, made issues of the racial composition of the foster care population, something that has to be reported, monitored, and fixed. The National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, most of them family court judges who handle abuse and neglect or juvenile cases, disproportionality is one of the top priorities. So the judges are talking about it, the social workers are talking about it, and they're trying to match practice and safety to change that dynamic. Now, is it successful? Time will tell because it is, it's more complicated than just, oh, there are too many black kids. Yeah, there are too many black kids out there in foster care, and they stay much longer than others possibly in some jurisdictions. But the bottom line is what do we have to do about it? Everybody has to be vigilant. Everybody has to report, and we have to be conscious that this dynamic happens so, how do we meet our time frames so that using the law, it begins to take care of a dynamic that has existed for a long time?
1: So, I can understand from your example that you gave why they might, why the economics, as you described, is more of an economic issue perhaps than a racial issue, but I, that makes sense to me why children would, uh, uh, emergency room physicians, would be more likely to report someone they don't know, um, and, was, and and poor people are more likely to end up in emergency rooms rather than go into, you know, their, their private pediatrician. But why do children, why do black kids or children of color in general, why do they end up staying in care longer? There's a perception that the requirements for reunification, which from, for our audience, things such as attending parenting classes, taking a, getting into a rehab or, 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 or proof of attending uh, 12-step program classes, uh, not attending a 12-step program, um, getting a job, things like that are, are when we say work the plan, that's the plan. Those are the type of things that are often in plans. Or staying away from an abusive boyfriend or, or things such as that. So why, why would children of color... End up staying in the system. Is it true that the that the requirements for reunification are are more stringent for families of color?
2: No. Let me let me let me correct one thing. I'm not saying it's not race and it's economics. I'm saying that our social structure contributes to this, and this will help to answer your question. So, if you looked at any community and you looked at the high school graduation rate, and you uh, looked at where What part of the city, let's say, most of the kids in foster care are coming from, okay? Then you look at the graduation rates of the parents of those children from high school, literacy rates. Then you have child is removed. Now we need a plan. What does that parent have to do? And I think most people who have been involved with the court process know that, yes, you're going to have to go take a parenting class. You're going to have to uh, maybe go for a psychological evaluation. You may have to be evaluated for drug and alcohol treatment. And if you don't have a diploma, you have to get a GED. Now, if you don't know how to read, you can't get a GED. But I bet any money, anybody would ask a question about a, a plan for reunification, there may be that GED requirement. And if you can't read... You can't get a GED these days. It's not going to happen.
1: But illiteracy should be a reason for, for losing your child. Um, no,
2: illiteracy is not a reason for losing your child. We're talking about the plan that's developed. And the reality is when a social worker sits and develops the plan, the parent, the kid's just been removed. The parent is trying to figure out how to get their kid back. Right. They agree to do things, okay. Anything Their at that agreement, point. yes, to get that. I'm using that as an example. This is, this is a foil against the hospital example. Their agreement to get that GED. It may take four, five months for anybody to realize the person can't read well enough to pass the test. Yeah. So it gets into some of the practice that has to happen. Around very sensitive issues for people who are prideful people. Clients, when I, I did represent uh, parents, and it took me a while to realize I had to come up with a way to find out whether they could read or not. Because you just can't ask a person, because they'll say yes. So, but look at it from the standpoint of that child losing that four months playing around with a goal about a GED that is not, it may happen sometime in this person's life. They may get motivated to to deal with their educational deficits, but maybe it's better to say, we want to get you into a sheltered uh, training program
1: mm-hmm.
2: that does not require a GED. So whatever the employment issue that that the social worker may determine is necessary to keep that family together, That will be part of the plan, not necessarily getting a GED. And then you find out that some of the things that the parents need to reach their goal of reunification are not available in the community. Well, the longer you wait to find that out, the longer the kid stays in care. This is part of the dynamic that creates the disproportionality. I hope that makes sense. That's why I'm saying it's not just they go and grab people of color Yeah, there's some of that, but in terms of the whole dynamic of the system, it's related to things that we have going on in our communities that are not meeting the needs of families and children.
1: Yeah, and and, and there is systemic racism that that we have to address as well. Um, But even as you're describing it, that's even beyond the systemic racism, just practical things of, You've got to take a parenting class. Well, if the parenting class that is approved is located, you know, fifteen miles away and you don't have a car and it's not on a bus route then how you are you going it. to get there? You're waiting for somebody to take you and what if you're right, you know, you're asking favors of, of people who are uh, other people who are busy and if they don't show up and it's like the system is stacked against But who comes up with the reunification plan? Um, And and how can we allow these plans to be created, which are just inherently unfair and and fundamentally don't necessarily have to do with the quality of parenting? Um, Not that a parenting class wouldn't be, but your example of the GED is a perfect one. So who comes up with the reunification plan, and does a judge have to buy off on it?
2: Yeah, the uh, plan is developed, again, from the, it's supposed to be developed from the beginning of the case so that the parent knows with these time frames, you have 18 months, maximum 24. So we're going to sit down. This is a social worker and the parent. We're going to sit down and work out exactly what you need to do to get your child back, okay? There's supposed to be a case plan that's developed from the instant the child comes into care, The reunification plan flows out of that case plan. The social worker is supposed to be monitoring progress so that at the last minute you're not saying, well, she didn't do anything. There are supposed to be periodic hearings. There are supposed to be reports to the court. There are supposed to, in some jurisdictions, there are administrative reviews that are handled by the agency. In other places, there are foster care review uh, hearings that are held by a panel of citizens that. Is managed by the court um, Ultimately, at the point that a permanency goal, not a reunification plan, a permanency goal has to be set. That's in that first 24 months. The court has to sign off on it. The court has to say, the court agrees that this is the appropriate plan. We're going to reunify on X date or mom has done X, Y, and Z, she's making good progress, but because of this factor, she's going to need a little bit more time, and then a date certain is supposed to be set so it doesn't drift. And then if at those marked dates, if the mom or dad has not completed, what needs to be done to return the child safely and close the case then another goal is set. Now, that could be adoption, or at that point it could be guardianship with a relative or other fit person, or depending on the age of the child, there may be some alternatives. But it is not something that the planning is not done in a vacuum. But that's where every one of the players has to be ready, willing, and able to ask questions, okay? So me as a judge, I would say to that woman who had, I'm looking at the case plan and it says uh, GED, I'm going to ask, are there any impediments that would keep her from meeting this goal? Now that could be the impediment of not being able to read or that the GED program that's available that they want to send her to is in another county and she doesn't have transportation. So then in the hearings, and we're talking about hearings early in the case, in those hearings, we're putting things on the table. We're not just rubber stamping things. And it also provides a space for both the foster parent, the parent who generally is going to be there if they're participating, foster parent, parent, guardian at litem, to be interacting with each other as the judge is watching it. And now we're talking about relationships being set up. So then down the road, mom may be very happy to say, I can't do this. I like this lady and her husband or her partner who are caring for my kids, and they're going to allow me to see them or know about them. I'm willing to give up this fight. And that's what I saw happen when we do it in a way that allows everybody to put things on the table as honestly as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. Because this is very difficult for people, just like it's difficult for the foster parents, okay, But having those hearings where everybody who has something that touches the life of that child or those children in that family are sitting there, even if it's relatives, grandma may not have the child, but grandma is going to be the one that makes sure if there's an agreement for uh, post-adoption or guardianship contact with the caregiver, that grandmother may be the one that facilitates it. So Mm -hmm. everybody in the circle – it has the opportunity. I don't know how much we're using it across the board, and I think that's where people get frustrated, whether it's foster parents or birth parents or birth family who feel shut out of the process.
1: You are listening to Creating a Family, and today we're talking about the foster care system and how it is viewed from a family court judge, the one in position to be making some of these decisions. And the family court judge we have is Karen Howes. Um, some of our, wanted to remind you of, about some of our other gold sponsors. I talked about a few at the beginning of the show. It is through the generous support of these sponsors that this show is being able to be brought to you. We have Adoption Connections, they are a California based adoption agency working with families throughout the U.S. They were a national pioneer in open adoption and are respected for ethical practice, compassion, and openness to both adoptive and birth families of all types. And we have Hopscotch Adoptions. They are a Hague-accredited adoption agency placing waiting children from around the world, offering home study and post-adoption support to residences of North Carolina and New York. All right, Karen, we're back to one of the questions you've when we talked, we've been talking about this, uh, about the responsibilities, and without a doubt the caseworkers, the social service caseworkers, have a huge responsibility, and very often they also have a huge caseload. And it's incredibly difficult to uh, manage uh, each of these cases uh, when there is so much at stake. I mean, this is a huge burden. There is so much at stake with each of these cases, and yet their their caseloads, are very high and quite often the attrition rates were were caseworkers probably because of the the weight of the load and the and the amount of their caseload both um, there's a high attrition rate is there any hope for improvement in this area because children as well as birth families and foster families benefit generally from having continuity in in case care
2: I think I'm the wrong person to answer that question because um, uh, I know in in my time in DC, um, the caseload issue um, was one that just would it would resolve itself and then shoot up again. Again, some of it because of attrition, some of it because of uh, increased caseloads, just simply because something was happening in town. Um, you know, you, you you have uh uh the social workers <clears throat> for the most part that I experienced, exactly what you said, Don, very dedicated. Many of them are young. They were not trained in child welfare. I mean there's no um very few schools that have a social work uh area of concentration in child welfare or juvenile justice um so they're learning on the job in a in an intense environment and it 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 requires such emotional strength and we're talking about for the most part many many are very young people mm-hmm. um and it, it there is as good as the agency structure is that is um that they're working for. And I think anybody from anywhere in the country, you know, you read the stories, L.A. has had problems, Texas has had problems, D.C. has had problems. But our problems only show up when a child is seriously injured or dies. And I think some of the federal reporting includes caseload. It includes attrition. So that that's part of what, under the Adoption Safe Families Act, when they are monitoring the performance to justify how much money you get, um, they're also looking at some of that structural, um, the structural dynamic, understanding that it's going to be fluid, it's going to be difficult. Um, it's, I think it's the nature of the beast. It's the same thing, I think, for if you talk to judges, they will say the same thing. Our caseloads are... In many places, very, very high, and you have to spend time with each of these cases. How do you spend time uh, at least an hour when you've got 200 cases that you're dealing with in a week, and you yeah, need to spend at point. least an hour on each case? So it's 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 because that's where the issue of numbers of kids in care, disproportionality, because the goal is to figure out how to keep kids safe without putting them into this system that is not going to make them any safer because of the length of time they stay and the lack of services available to them and to their family members.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I clerked with a federal judge, not a family court judge, but a federal judge, um, and and he, he was the chief judge of, of the Northern District of, of the state, and he managed his caseload, I mean, I mean, he was very cognizant, and and I suspect and he judged other judges under him by their ability to move cases along and bring cases to trial and not have, you know, backlogs. And not that, that his cases were, the cases in that court were less important, they weren't, but the reality is you're right. I hadn't even given that much thought, but there's probably pressure on the Family court judges to also move things along. You've got to keep your, you've got to manage your docket. You've got to get it moved. You can't have, you can't keep, you know, rescheduling cases. You've got to keep them moving. So, yeah, it's like the whole system is is such. What are your thoughts towards um, the the trend towards privatization of of? social work care, either through adoptions or fostering either one. Uh, I don't know what D.C.'s position was, but many states are, uh, are, are contracting with private agencies to do some of the social work and try to find homes for children, either adoptive or foster homes. What do you think, what are your thoughts towards the, the privatization?
2: Well, actually, um, in D.C., probably since the 80s, the child welfare agency has had contracts with um tra- the traditional um uh adoption foster care agency, you know, Lutheran Social Services, Catholic Charities. Mm-hmm. Uh there were also some private agencies that came up that uh would specialize in therapeutic foster homes so that they only dealt with kids who had significant emotional uh uh needs. Uh, and then there were other private agencies that came up to deal with kids who were over 15 and brought into care. Those agencies um, have have really been, I believe, from my experience, a godsend to DC uh, because you you end up with um, a a cross section of folks who come to the private agencies in a a way that they may not feel comfortable going to the child welfare agency, either because there's a perception that you're going to be treated badly, uh, which exists in some communities, uh, or that those agencies are, they fit with, um, you know, sort of the beliefs and uh, family ethics of the people who are seeking to be foster or adoptive parents. So it, it just sort of evens the, the playing field, um, and they have been extremely successful in D.C. Many of them have gotten out of foster care, but, you know, people come in and out. I mean, there are some folks who have started programs that have been very successful and have done well by the kids.
1: So I, think I don't think I, it's something I, I that should be
2: just canceled. Can, you know, it, 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 it isn't like contracting your prison service. You know, it, it.
1: Yeah, I think it's been successful for uh, many counties. We often, uh, well, we've done surveys of our audience and our online communities, and and not always, but very often, we hear um, better reports for, for lack of better word, customer service and attention to right. returning phone calls, things like that, and 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 more time being spent. Uh, right. Uh, uh, foster families so uh, we always encourage people to look into that option here's a question but that let
2: me just add, let me go let me add this I think that it is only going to be successful if the contracting is done and carefully managed by um, the agency so that by if the, there is the a problem agent. that problem is taken care of the public agency That problem is taken care of immediately, and there are structures in place for appeals of any uh, issues with the foster parents or with the management of the um, private program.
1: Yeah, and I can see that as well. Here's a question from Anna. Uh, Quite frankly, I I suspect this may be more rhetorical, but uh, I'm going to read it anyway she asked why is so much money spent on attracting new foster families via advertising when support services for current foster families is so severely lacking services such as daycare vouchers transportation services access to proper medical records blah 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 um so again i'm i'm uh, i think it's worth uh, let's let's talk about it i'm not sure it's actually a question per se um support services for foster families, respite care, things such as that. Um, I don't know as a judge if how much influence you have on that, um, but um, why is uh, – well, there may be distinctions across the country, but uh, what is the status of support services to help foster families succeed?
2: Well, the um – this is. I'm going to go back to an earlier part of our conversation. This is the important reason that foster parents should show up in court. Hmm. They should go to the hearings because we can talk about what a city does not have or a county does not have. But if I've got a kid in front of me and the foster parent is saying, this child is having sex so many problems that every day I've got to go pick them up from school, and then I'm losing time on my job, what will be my response as the judge? I'm going to look at the government and say, well, okay, what are we going to do about this? What does this child need? So it, it is not you, foster parent, being the squeaky wheel and always demanding something. It's always put in the context of the well-being and safety of this child. This child is not safe if he or she is in a home where they are being stressed out, okay? And now we're close to two months from now, I'm sorry, the baby's got to go. We can't do it. So showing up and saying, because the judge should be asking, what do, you, do you need anything for this child? Now, no, they can't do anything about how much money you get paid and all of that, but we're talking services then now we at that hearing can have a conversation about what do we need to do to make this happen and how long is it going to take before it's done. And then for me as judge, I would end up saying, okay, we're coming back in two weeks to see whether this plan is working. That's how this is supposed to work. Now, so if if, does if every judge do say, it this way? I don't know, okay? I don't know. I don't know what the county's response or the, or the city's response would be to being pressured like that, but there well, that's is a way to do it. There is okay, a that, way to do it.
1: Let me let me ask a question then. All right, you as a judge, the the social um, the, the foster parent shows up and says, you know, I I need transportation help. I mean, I've got the, I've got two foster kids. You know, let's say it's a sibling set. I am taking them to. Uh, three appointments each each week uh the eldest one is getting uh suspended from school uh every other week on average and i'm having to go pick them up i need transportation services how responsible how responsive i should say is the county going to be is the social service department whatever it's called in your state going to be if a judge says we need to get these services does the county they then have to provide the services if the judge says it
2: let me say it this way because this is where the legal stuff comes in every time there is a hearing where you're checking on the plan and the goal the court has to make a determination whether the agency is making reasonable efforts to ensure the current goal reunification or move to adoption okay These issues that we're talking about with services, that's part of the reasonable efforts. So I, as a judge, can't make them do something that's unreasonable. But what I'm suggesting is, if transportation is the issue, the foster parent may be defining it as transportation, but in fact, by asking questions in that hearing to address the needs of that child, maybe there is something out there that is more important than transportation. Maybe there is, and some cities have this, every place doesn't. You're in a rural area, you're not going to necessarily have these things. But the Department of Mental Health, not connected to child welfare, has multisystemic treatment. If the kid needs support psychiatrically, that's not about transportation. But the only way we can know that is to have that conversation. Now, it may mean the foster parent is going to have two weeks or three weeks where it's going to be a pain. Okay, But the conversation about what each of these children needs will begin. And that's what I think we miss because all the players are not at the table. I can't demand as a judge that they pay for transportation, Okay, but I can say as a judge, you're not meeting this plan if this kid is not getting what he or she needs to be able to function in the foster home whether the foster parent is going to adopt or not, because this kid needs to be um, given the support so that if he or she goes home, the kid is better off and able to ma- be managed in the home, regardless of what the outcome is. So yeah. that's that's what I'm, I'm trying to say. And I think I know from uh, uh, pre-adoptive parents, foster parents, even parents, that there would be, knock-down, drag-down fights about services. And the services that were requested were not available. But we can be creative. We can figure something out to relieve the pressure but also make sure this child is getting what they need to be made whole again.
1: At what age do you take in what the child wants? That was a question from Jocelyn. She is asking, uh, for older children, what voice do they have in what their permanency plan will be?
2: Um, I am going to make a generalization, but everybody should check their state. But generally at uh, 13, or whatever is the age of um, in the child welfare law that says they must appear for the hearings, but generally it's 13. Uh, that, for example, in, in many states, a 13-year-old would have to consent to the adoption.
1: What about permanency? Being, does a 13-year-old have a voice in whether or not reunification is yes. an
2: option? Yes, yes, The child should be engaged, the workers, the guardian at litem, the CASAs, the psychologists, if there are any involved, should be engaging with the child about what is happening to the child and what the plan is because they're the most important thing in this, this process.
1: And certainly their,
2: now, their for buy-in me, to the plan is important.
1: Yeah.
2: Their buy-in is important, but see, I don't as, as a judge, I'm asking the question as to what a child thinks as soon as the child is able to have an opinion not because the law says so. So you can have a six-year-old who can, I wouldn't necessarily do the inquiry, but I might get them with a therapist because I'm seeing from the reports that there are behaviors that happen at visits that just are, and I want to know the context of that. So I may have somebody evaluated, the kid evaluated, to get a feel from the therapist, what do you think this child wants? And good therapists can, can can do that. Now, maybe they are not going to end up being the deciding factor, but it gives you a sense of what work needs to be done so that if reunification happens, it can be successful, or that maybe we need to give this more time and we need some intervention for the child. Because remember <laughs> what I said, everything is supposed to be about this child while preserving Amen. the rights. Of, of the uh, parent until a court determines that the evidence is clear and convincing that the, it is in the best interest of this child to terminate the parent's birthright.
1: Let me stop here and thank our last gold sponsors and to remind you that this show wouldn't be happening without their support. We truly, truly appreciate their support and we want you to know about them. We have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have been helping children connect with loving families for more than 50 years. They now have offices from coast to coast providing domestic, international, foster, and embryo donation adoption services. We also have... Children's Connection, they are an adoption agency with offices throughout Texas providing domestic infant adoption, embryo donation adoption, home studies, and post-adoption support to families throughout the United States. And we have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law. Karen, the one thing I want to end on is a question that if you could make one reform to the foster care system Nationwide or in your area, um, what would that be?
2: Um, The one reform that I think I would want is a more um, unified approach. The Child Welfare Agency is not responsible for everything. That if you have a Department of Developmental Disabilities, within the county, that they are linked with the Child Welfare Agency. Same thing, the Department of Mental Health or Behavioral Health, that they are linked so that we are beginning to track the needs of the kids. They're getting services managed by child welfare, but expert services that are the responsibility of these other executive branch agencies. Uh, to provide to every member of the community. Now, what will that do? That child welfare kid is adopted or goes to grandma, and that child is already linked in to those services. So the person who becomes the permanent home does not have to start all over again. Every child who comes through the system is on everybody's radar screen. Um, Some places do that effectively, but it's not really the norm. and that's that's what we need. Uh, you, we can take it out to the kids who are going to age out of foster care. They should be automatically plugged into the Department of Employment Services if they're not going to go on to college or other um, trade um, uh, programs. Um, because these kids are our community, and they're going to be in our community
1: mm-hmm.
2: once they have aged out.
1: hmm they are all of our kids. I mean, then they're all of our responsibilities. That's a beautiful That's right. Uh, both sentiment and in a great way to end. Thank you so much, Karen Howes, former family court judge at the DC Superior Courts, uh, for being our guest today on creating a family. Um, If our audience, if you've enjoyed the show and you want to help us grow, and we hope you do, please give this podcast a rating on iTunes. It's how iTunes, we are rated number one. We we very much honor that rating, and we would like to continue to remain there. So if you could please take a moment and give us a, a rating, we would really appreciate it. Thank you all for joining us today, and I am going to see you next week.
0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Old moon. Yeah. That's Hugo tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you too. There's